I want to just welcome everyone one more time. I want to thank all of you who are here because perhaps a family member or a friend invited you, and you came because you thought, ah, they're not going to stop bugging me, so I might as well get it out of the way. Uh, We're thankful if you're here. We're thankful if you're here, if you just kind of are curious and wondering what this whole God thing's about. Um, We're thankful that you are here as well. Will you uh, pray with me as we prepare our hearts? Dear Heavenly Father, we are eternally grateful that we have the opportunity and the freedom to gather here and to worship you freely. And so now as we open up Scripture, Lord, my prayer is that you would clear all of the distractions that are going on in our minds right now. God, I pray that you would clear all of the worries and the anxieties of the things that we have to do after church or tomorrow or the day after. I pray that for the next few minutes, the next few moments, Lord, that you would silence all of those concerns and that you would help us to be fully present to your presence here this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning, at the core of the teaching and of my teaching is why is hope needed in the midst of abundance? As you see the title up above, you see hope in the midst of abundance. But usually hope is needed when you have a little bit or when you are in a scarce situation, not when you have everything you need. Hope is for people whose backs are against the wall, not people who have everything together. Hope is for the people who have hit rock bottom, who find themselves in the valley of life, not for those who are on the mountaintop. Hope is for those who have given up, not for those who have accomplished everything. Hope is not for those who find themselves living with an abundance of things. Because when you have everything you want and when you have everything that you need, there is no room for hope in our lives because we've already reached and we already have all that we want. But this teaching is about having everything you need and most of what you want and you still need hope. So let me see if I can, if I can get you to come along with me on this journey. When you're, I don't know, three years old to nine years old, And you're watching television, or even 10 years old, right? You watch television, and we watch um, sports. And this this is an analogy for boys, so girls, ladies, if you can try to come along and understand this. But when we're young, when we're up to the age of 10 years old and we watch sports, we choose our favorite teams at a very early age. Sometimes we choose a team because of its uniforms, or because of a player, or because that's what our older brother or our dad likes. But a part of choosing our favorite team, we also hope that one day we will be John Elway. When we're kids, we hope to become the athletes that we admire, that we idolize. As kids, we hope to be able to reach the height of professional sports because we want to play at the biggest stage of our lives. But when we turn to 10, 11, or 12 years old, what ends up happening? We realize that no one in my family is over six foot tall, so I'm probably not going to be a quarterback in the National Football League. So that hope And that dream slowly begins to fade away. I remember one time when I was in second grade, John Elway, my favorite quarterback of all time, still kind of my favorite, although I kind of like Tim Tebow, even though he's not very good. But I remember after coming in from recess or from P.E. and we played football that day for P.E., I remember trying to walk like John Elway. He was pigeon-toed. I'm not pigeon-toed. I remember going up to all of my teammates and telling them, how good of a job they did during the game that we lost because John Elway lost three Super Bowls before winning one. 
And so I thought to myself, man, I'm, in my mind, I was, I was channeling John Elway. It's dumb, I know. But that's what kids do until we realize that for the majority of us, we will not be the professional athletes that we desire to be. When we're 12, 13, 14 years old, we begin to see these really nice cars on television. For me, I used to get these Motor Trend magazines from my friend. And the few dollars that I did have, I would get these Motor Trend magazines and I would begin to dream and imagine what it would be like when I got the Dodge Viper, the fastest street legal car at the time. I thought to myself, I am going to blare the music as loud as it can go and I am just going to drive around and pick up chicks. I was 12, okay? I was 12 years old. I already knew what song I was going to be thumping in my stereo. It was either the Dodge Viper or the, or, or the Ford um, Mustang Cobra souped up. I'd already figured it out. And then I turned 16 years old, and somewhere along the line of 16 years old, my dad comes home with a burgundy 1988 $500 Dodge Turbo Conquest. You can't even Google it. They don't, that's how bad they were. You're not even going to find one. I drove it like it was a Dodge Viper, but it leaked gasoline, so we had to get rid of it. I had it for a few weeks. I didn't do that to it, by the way. It was already like that. I had hopes. I had dreams of having this nice, awesome car that was going to make me feel awesome until reality hits. And then you get your first car, and I go with a Honda Accord because it's reliable and it's safe and it's pretty good on gas. The hopes and dreams are dashed by responsibility and making good choices. When you're in college, you dream of having a career that's going to change the world or make lots of money, and you put in loans and scholarships and your parents and family members, they help you to get through college, and then you graduate, and then you can't find the job you really want, so you end up settling for the job that you can get because bills have to be paid, and adulthood is here. There's something wrong when what, ends, when what we hope, we dream, and we aspire to is unattainable. So what ends up happening? We don't get to reach all of those things that we want to. Now, some of you, you have reached that, and we're glad and we're thankful for that. But for a lot of the rest of us, we don't reach or we don't attain the things that we think will make us the happiest. And so what we end up doing is that we begin to settle for what's good enough and not what's very best. We begin to settle for the status quo over a life that flourishes. I mean, we do this for many reasons, for practical reasons. We settle for jobs and other things because we need what? Security and stability. Throw a kid into the mix and you definitely need security and stability. And so when the kids arrive, all you need is a job, two jobs, three jobs, whatever it is to get the bills paid. And what ends up happening is years after years, you miss out on the life that God is calling you to live because all we care about is security and stability. I would say this, and it's in your study guide, security and stability are code words for the things that you put your trust and your hope into. The thing is that sometimes this hope, the stability and the security that we look for leads us into a sort of a slavery. It begins to pop up later in life. Sometimes we hear the midlife crisis things coming up. Women have it just as much as men. But it comes up later in life when we hear people say, if only I could do it all over, I would do a lot of things differently. Or I wish that I could, and you fill in the blank. 
but now I can't. Now it's too hard. Now I have children. Now I have bills to pay. Now adulthood has crept into my life, and I can't go do the things I know I'm supposed to be doing because I have to be responsible. This morning's teaching is about how we got to that place and how God is calling us away from that. So if you have your Bibles, oh, stability can lead to a form of slavery. You got that one. So if you have your Bibles or the Red Pew Bible in front of you, I invite you to open your Bible to Revelation chapter 3. It's the very last book in the Bible. Hope in the midst of abundance. And you're going to see how the Bible in this passage in particular has so much to say to each one of us this morning. Revelation chapter 3. says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. This is just a way to begin a letter by saying, these are the words of God. Now, when God writes a letter, maybe we should listen up, right? Amen? No? (laughs) So here we go. I know your works. This is God speaking to a group of people in in the city of Laodicea. It says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Because you are neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit you out. So, I want to give you some background so we kind of really understand where we're at. Laodicea, a word we use sometimes in churches, but Laodicea was an actual city, a Los Angeles of types. Okay, it was an actual city in the Roman world, and it was located in a place. It was located along the, the central um, uh, road system of the Roman Empire. So they were at the center of everything. People had to pass through the city if they wanted to go somewhere else. Not only that, they were known for being a great financial city. They had a lot, a lot of money. They were so wealthy that when an earthquake devastated them in AD 60, um, they refused any kind of government help and said, that's okay. We'll take care of it ourselves. We'll rebuild our city. I mean, they had that much money. Their money came from manufacturing a specific kind of clothes. It was like a black wool, uh, soft and glossy wool clothing of some sort, and it was exported all over the world. So they were rich because of fashion and finance. They had everything they wanted. Not only that, they had a huge reserve of gold in the city. So they had tons of money, and beyond that, they were also famous for having a medical school. One of the things that they specialized in which an eye, was an eye salve, so something you would put on your eyes, and it would help you to see better. Laodicea was a central place for people. People in the first century would have known, oh, Laodicea, that's the city that has everything they want. There was even a saying that says, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and I have no need of everything. So this is a city that had Literally, everything. And to that city, the God writes, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Most scholars have interpreted this passage in light of their geographical background, the lukewarm. So the city that had everything was missing one thing, hot water. 
So six miles to the north of their city, there was Hierapolis, and, and that city had the, it was, there was next to the mountains, and they had hot springs coming down from the mountain, and so they had lots of hot water for medicinal purposes. So what would happen is they, the Laodiceans built an aqueduct system that ran six miles, so when the hot water came out of the hot springs, it could be filtered down to Laodicea. The problem is, is after six miles, do you think the water was hot? No, it was lukewarm. It was disgusting to them. Now, if it was hot, it could be used for medicinal purposes. If it was cold, then it was good for drinking. But what we find is that during that time, all it was really good for, by the time it got down to Laodicea, was simply to bathe in. So it's the, it's the water you washed yourself with and your clothes and your dishes. It wasn't very good for anything. So what happens is, what was supposed to be good, the hot water, instead of being used for medicinal purposes, for something good, for its intended purpose, it just became dish water, became bath water. Now, this isn't a sermon about water. It's metaphoric language because God was doing something here. He was taking something they understood and something they knew well. So when God says, because you are lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out. There's no need, there's no use for you. You have just given up on your calling and on what you have been destined to do. What John was really trying to say is that the faith of the Christians in Laodicea was lukewarm at best. Now, to fill in your thing, your your study guide, lukewarm is the same as being indifferent. How many of you have ever, and you don't have to raise your hands, how many of you When life is going at its highest, like at its very best, when everything is going as it should be, everything, your relationships, your job, church life, everything is going great, do we really come to God a lot and say, oh, God, thank you for all that you're doing for us? Or is it, oh, okay, thank you, God. I'm going to get to reading my Bible a little bit later because right now I'm busy. I have to go do stuff. See, when things are going really well, we don't always go to God. Because why? It's God's already there for us. He's doing everything for us. Everything's great. But have you ever found or discovered that when things are really difficult for you, maybe you're in the valley as we use that metaphor, when things are bleak and difficult, we turn to God for that. Whenever we find ourselves in those situations, it's almost as though we are God's best friend. But what we find in Laodicea is everything's going great. We have no need for God. Now, one quote I want to read to you says this, that the lukewarm condition of the Laodiceans indicates that they have fallen into the status of indifference and self-sufficiency. They have lost their original enthusiasm and zeal for spiritual matters. The Laodiceans were settling for things that their money could do for them. In essence, they were settling for the status quo of earthly wealth rather than what God could give them. This is the cultural context that we find this letter being written to. It matters to us because I fear that sometimes we find ourselves in the very same place. Now, I'm not rich by any worldly standard. As a matter of fact, my kids will always ask me, uh, we'll be talking about something, and they'll be like, oh, is that family rich? To which I always have to answer, it depends how you define rich. What is wealth? What is richness? You see, at the core of this passage and central to our Christian faith is how do you define 
wealth. How do you define richness? And the Laodiceans say, "For, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Yet you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They may have everything that they need, but it isn't what is truly meaningful. They can buy everything they want and build up their palaces, but they were not created for things. I would say it this way. They may have the money to buy everything they desire, but you are not created for things. You know, it's funny, on Thursday, this Thursday, by the way, we have a Thanksgiving breakfast. It's always really good food. We know you're going to eat a lot, so just give... Just forget it. Just come and eat a lot anyway. But come on Thursday, this coming Thursday morning at 8.30 in the morning, we're going to get together and we're just going to um, enjoy church life, hang out with each other, talk, talk with each other, talk about what we're thankful for, but most importantly, eat some really good food. But it's funny because we say, yeah, we don't live for things. We don't live for things. We're humans. We live for God. We're Christians. We live for more than things. But it's funny because on Thursday... We're going to come and we're going to go around the table and we're going to say everything we're thankful for. And then some of us are going to go to Black Friday sales. (laughs) We have everything we need, but we need one more of them. No judgment. I think we did it last year or the year before. I can't remember. Sometimes it's good deals. I don't know. If you need it. But the truth is we give thanks for everything. And from the pulpit, we say, we don't need anything but God's love. And yet the very first day that those sales hit, we are right there trying to get as much as we can afford. Because there's something about humanity that we begin to live for things and the things we can accumulate. But it's a good thing that we're not like the Laodiceans, right? We're not indifferent. We're not like them. The truth is, that though we find ourselves in a bit of a recession and another recession looms, right? With all, this, all this stuff we hear. The truth is, is that our economy is not doing very well and yet we still are pretty rich, right? Have so much. We still can go to the stores and buy the things that we need and buy the things that we want. In many ways, we embody Laodicea was going through. We have everything, God. We have everything. So thank you for your salvation. Thank you for that you have forgiven us. But we've got everything we need. So Jesus comes to this church in this letter, and he says, you think you have all that you need and all that you desire. But he says this. Remember, they have a huge gold reserve, and Jesus says this. Therefore, I you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white robes to clothe you to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. I reprove and discipline those whom I love. Be earnest, therefore, and repent. Now, remember the Bible is tied together. The Bible isn't just a bunch of random words connected. It is intentional. So look, this passage right here, see the beauty of inspiration here. God takes what the Laodiceans know and understand, and he changes it. So he says, here, you guys have gold? You have a gold reserve in your banks? You think you guys have all that you need? Listen, buy gold from me that's refined by fire. You want something that's really valuable? Buy from me. Does God 
really have gold to give? Is he really trying to say that, that he's going to give them gold? No. What he's trying to say is you think that that gold you have makes you wealthy. No, I have something better. The very few instances that the Bible talks about heaven, and it talks very little about heaven, okay? The Bible talks very little about heaven. But one of the ways it describes it is that the streets are paved with what? Gold. Now, what do you do on streets? You walk on. Now, think about this for a second. We walk on what on this earth? Dirt, pavement, blacktop. So in essence, what God is saying, when you get to heaven, wait, is concrete and, and all that stuff, is it really valuable? I mean, it costs a lot to do, right? That's why we need our parking lot done. It costs a lot to install, but is it valuable? No. We walk on it. We don't walk on things that are valuable. So what God is saying, in essence, when you get to heaven, gold is valueless. There's no value. You're going to walk on it. It's a thing that the streets are made of that you walk on. See, we think it's so valuable here, but what God is saying is like, no, no, no. That's not real value. That's not true richness. There is something that is so much more. Remember, the other thing that makes Laodicea so rich is this black wool that's soft and shiny wool that they are exporting all around the world. So something to make clothes with. And God says, you think that gives you real riches? He says, I have white robes to clothe you and keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen. You think the garments you're selling all around the world is real richness? No. I have something that is better than anything you can produce. And that thing in Isaiah 61, do I have it on here? Oh, no, I don't. In Isaiah 61, the Bible says that God has clothed me with the garments of salvation and he has covered me with a robe of righteousness. The fact that this thing that God has given you that covers the nakedness and the shame, how many of you, don't raise your hands because I know we all will raise our hands, how many of you have done something that you wish you could take back? You could take back? How many of you have ever done something that has been so painful and so hurtful? Don't raise your hands. So painful and so hurtful to other people. How many of you have ever done that and you just want to take it back? You just want another chance. How many of you have ever said something that has destroyed someone else? How many of you have ever done something that was so dishonest that if the person sitting behind you knew, they would judge you and think differently of you? How many of you have ever done something in your past that you think to yourself, if the church family only knew, they wouldn't like me as much? That is shame. That is guilt. And what we find here is that God says, you may have everything that you think makes you happy. You may think you have everything. You may have the nice house. You may have the nice clothes. You may drive the nice car. You may have everything that this earth determines that makes you wealthy and you have it all together. You may have the most beautiful husband or the most beautiful wife or the most beautiful and smartest kids. You may have all of that. But oftentimes we get all of these things to portray a picture to the people around us. But none of it hides our shame or our guilt. And what we find God saying is, look, you may think you have everything, but I will give you a white robe that will cover your guilt and your shame. That thing that you did, that you wish no one knew about, God covers you. That thing that you said to that person who you were supposed to love with your whole heart, God somehow covers that. We're all full of sin. 
And yet what we find in the Bible is that all of that stuff, God will cover with a robe of righteousness and salvation. And God does not hold it against you. The gospel, the good news of the scriptures is that God forgives you and gives you a second chance. And the third part of this, he says, and I have set you anoint your eyes. Remember, Laodicea was popular or well-known for their medical schools, especially eye selves. And so they were helping people see. And God says, you think you're helping people see? I'm going to really, really help you see. In essence, this is a letter that is calling a people who live in a, in, a, in a society that has everything, and he says it's not about all of those things you can accumulate and accrue. It doesn't matter how many cars you have or what year your car is. It doesn't matter how much is in your bank account. It doesn't matter how much you have in your 401k or in your investments or in the Cayman Islands or wherever we send our money where it doesn't get taxed. I wouldn't know because I don't have that much, but I have a piggy bank in my house. <laughs> But God says, all of that stuff, come on. Come on, it doesn't really matter. And I have to remind myself of this. And I, and I just remember, I was talking to my wife, and I said, you know, after writing the sermon, right? And I said, you know, I think we dream too small. I think we focus on the things and the things that we can get, but God is wanting something so much bigger for us. God wants us to live truly, deeply, and meaningful eyes. The Laodiceans had everything, but what we find is that they didn't have anything at all. Sure, they had wealth in regards to material possessions, but according to God, having everything you want is not real wealth. And so we come to the invitation part of this passage. Oh, this is number four. Uh, The lukewarm condition indicates that they have fallen into a status of indifference, and self-sufficiency. They have lost their original enthusiasm and seal for spiritual matters. If you have everything and you know that you can accomplish anything on your own, do you have any need for anyone else? Do you have any need for God? If you have been single for a long time or you have had to raise kids on your own and then someone comes along and you fall in love with them and you say, I don't need you because I can do this by myself. When you, when you are self-sufficient and you feel like you can do all that you can on your own, there is no need for anyone else. And yet the picture that God paints is, if you think you can do it on your own, you're missing out on the life that I'm calling you to live. Just because you're rich doesn't mean you're really rich. And so the invitation comes to us in this form. Salvation and righteousness, number five. You can come back to that one. I missed that one. And so then in um, verse 20... Verse 20, you have to listen because it's not up there. It says, listen, this is God talking. Listen, I am standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. To the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. God says, listen, I am standing at the door knocking. It's written in the present tense and in the, in the Greek, which denotes that it is a continuous knocking. God is knocking right now. As you hear these words, there are people, there are some of you in here who are needing to allow God into your life. You may, be, you may, be, 
You may have been a Seventh-day Adventist your whole life. You may have been a Christian your whole life. You may have said the sinner's prayer. You may be baptized. You have not opened the door of your heart to God. And maybe this morning there is someone in here, there is one of you, two of you in here, who are just saying, God, I am opening my heart because I've been spinning a million miles a minute and I have been trying to do everything that I can and I'm still missing something. I would put it this way. Do you feel like you've been walking on a treadmill for many years and you haven't gotten anywhere? Think of the hamster spinning wheel. Do you feel like you've been running and running and running, but you haven't moved an inch? I will make this bold prediction that perhaps it's because you haven't opened your heart to the presence of Christ in your life. Listen, I'm a preacher, and you're in church, so I'm going to be blunt. If you feel like you're missing out on something like there is something missing and you just can't put your, your finger on it, you just can't figure it out, it's because maybe you haven't really allowed God into your life. Now I know, I know some of you who are here who maybe are not a part of our church, you're just saying, this is why I don't come to church because a preacher says that and then nothing happens. Or maybe you haven't opened your heart to the Lord. But if you are one of those people who just says, I want to open my heart to God, I want to see where God is leading, I don't know, I haven't done it before. If you're one of those people, look for me after the church service and I will walk alongside you to help you to find that. I will ask the elders, our head elder, our elders to walk alongside you because we don't believe in just preaching from the pulpit but in practicing what we preach. And if you are one of those people who you said, I need that, you come talk to us today and if there's five people in front of you, you wait. And there is no shame, even if you've been an Adventist your whole life, and you're just like, I just want that. No, there's no shame, because we're all in this together. We're all in this together, and as the leaders of this church, we have failed you if we don't walk alongside you and show you how wonderful living a life with Christ can be. To anyone that has an ear, listen to the words of the angel. And I'll finish with this. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they, you, may have life and have it more abundantly. I'm not going to ask anybody to come up because that's embarrassing. But if you are one of those people who's just wanting to open your heart up to God and say, I know that there's something that I've been missing and I just want to do it, I want you to just bow your heads with me right now. I want all of us to bow our heads with me. If you have found that relationship with Christ, if you have found it and you love it, then in your heart, open your heart now as I share a prayer for those who are about to dedicate their lives to God. God, as we stand here before you now on this, on this day where we are commemorating Thanksgiving, we have so much. And sometimes, God, the abundance of things gets in the way of us truly going after you. So this morning, God, there is someone or two or three people in this church who have been coming for years. There's people who have called themselves Christians. But God, there is someone here this morning now who is opening their heart up to you right now and saying, God, pour yourself into me now. God, I pray that your spirit would make a marked difference in their lives. I pray that they would have the courage to come and speak to me after church, Lord, that we may be able to lead them down the path of life and life more abundantly. God, at this moment now, As your presence is in this place, may you fill the heart of those who are opening up to you now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
as we sing this last song that we've been singing here for the last couple weeks. And as you go, depart from this place and continue throughout your week, um, we want this to be your reminder that your hope, all of your hope should be in one place. You shouldn't be worried about the things of this world. Christ alone is where you put your trust. And that's why we sing this song, Join Us.
with trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in Him be found, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless stand before the throne. Christ alone. Cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, He is Lord, Lord of all. Christ alone. that has been guiding us through this series where Paul says, Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? And our answer is it is nowhere. For Jesus has overcome and he has overcome the tomb. We're here because the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. And we believe that the same power that gives Jesus the ability to overcome the grave gives you the power to overcome any death. Will you bow your heads with me now? Oh, Heavenly Father, now we um, we are filled with just such intense emotion, Lord. We know that we have rejected you at times, but this morning for all of us, we want to make you the cornerstone and the foundation of our lives. And we pray that your spirit would fill us in such a way that we would never forget our zeal for the love the passion and faith that we have in you now. May this feeling of joy this feeling of happiness and completeness and faith in you never fade. May you fill us to overflowing. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.